Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by Nadia Ekbal. AKA just Nadia. There's there's Kanye, there's Elon, and there there's Nadia. Nadia, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Eric. So, so Nadia, when you look at the work that you have done the the last decade, sort of the writing, the researching, I'm curious, and this could be sort of a general introduction to the episode, what is sort of the the thread or threads that you think underlie uh, or undergird your your curiosity? I, I'll, I'll take a, a stance at it, and then I want you to to edit edit or, or add to it. So I, I see you as predominantly interested with how the internet enables creators, researchers, artists, maintainers to make, uh, make a living doing what they love, uh, on the internet. Um, but, uh, and sort of if Ben Thompson is, uh, t- focused on what the internet does to big tech companies, you are what the internet does to creators and, uh, individuals. Oh, that's pretty good. I'm going <laughs> to steal that and use it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think the kind of thread tying together personal interests, stuff I've done, everything, um, is this interest in content creators on the internet and just people making interesting stuff and understanding both like, why do people keep making interesting stuff and like, yeah, why do they do it? What motivates them? Um, and then also how do they make a living doing their work? And I think we often think about this stuff as like hobby, passionate kind of stuff because People love creating things of their own accord and they're intrinsically motivated or whatever to do, to make these things. But I'm also interested in helping people think about that a little bit more seriously of like, this doesn't always just have to be a side project kind of thing. How do people actually like, how do we actually like take that seriously? If we think that knowledge production is very important, socially important to all of us, um, how do we actually like, uh, help people realize that value? I think now is actually maybe more interesting than in the early days of the internet because everything was so, so new then that, that we didn't really have any like preconceived notions of how things could or should be working. We just sort of like taking offline models and applying them online. But now that we've had, let's say like 20 years of data or whatever about the internet and, and seeing like what it looks like when people make things and put them online and, um, and how like all our distribution channels are sort of changing over time. Um, there's a lot to actually like test and push back on and be like, Oh, this doesn't actually work the way we think it does. Or things are actually getting harder as, uh, you know, we try to, produce and distribute this kind of content at scale. There's just a lot of like really interesting stuff happening right now, I think even more so than in the early days. Yeah. And so if, um, if Ben Thompson's sort of, you know, discovery was uh, aggregation theory that the economics of the internet work, that uh, big tech companies focus on aggregating demand, whereas newspapers used to work by uh, aggregating supply and having monopoly over, over uh, the supply side. What do you think is your equivalent or closest thing to equivalent of what you've discovered about how the economics change online to, from offline for, for creators? What's the closest equivalent you have to aggregation theory? Come with a theory on the spot here. <laughs> um, something, I mean, I'm not going to even try to answer that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, some interesting observations I think I've been noticing. And this, I, I mean, a lot of it does parallel or I'm continually inspired by a lot of Ben Thompson's work. Um, one of the things he talks about is this like atomization of the individual and sort of unbundling of firms. So if you look at like something like journalism, it's, you know, there's one narrative you can tell about uh, newspapers are shutting down and everything's set on fire and oh God, what's going to happen in the future. Um, or you can kind of tell this like parallel, really interesting, optimistic tale of if a newspaper is a collection of like a bunch of journalists and we, and some of those journalists are sort of like standout individuals that, um, can capture more value from their own brands and 
like they, they give more from their own brand to that firm than the other way around necessarily um, and can strike it out on their own. Then like, what does it look like when those people kind of start going off and doing things independently? And I think it's actually like a really awesome time for independent content creators, but it requires this sort of like unbundling of institutions um, and really focusing on like the value that like individuals bring. And so I think when I think about sort of like early days of the internet, we were uh, much more focused on people producing things like communally. Um, and so when we even think and talk about communities now, a lot of it is this sort of like many to many sort of yeah interaction with one another. And we don't think as much about like the one to many kind of interaction because that's sort of a, a newer thing. And so there's such a heavy narrative in how we make things online that is like very much about participation and about community and like everyone pitching in and everyone like, yeah, doing things together. And I think like what sort of understanding that narrative is the power of individual content creators or yeah. individual or just anyone that can like gather or following an audience for whatever reason. And yeah, how did the dynamics change? And I think like one of the big ways that dynamic changes is uh, what we expect around participation. And so I've been trying to think about more, more about, I guess, creators putting things out there. And like, I think one of the, one of the big open questions is like, how do they manage the participation they get back from their audience? And uh, you can see a sort of like in the way that a lot of our social platforms are designed where it's like, anyone can comment on your posts or, and, you know, uh, influencers or whoever, like see all those comments and like, are they expected to respond to it all? Like at this point, I think we understand that like you can't. Um, it's tough for us <laughs> out there, Nadia. Yeah. <laughs> hard life, hard life. Yeah, I mean, like, everyone feels like they're an email, right? Where it's just like, ah, like, you know, I have this, like, or, and now with proliferation of, like, lots of different messaging inboxes, it's just like, I can't respond to all this stuff. Like, what am I supposed to do? And oh, so, the inbound. Yeah, the inbound. It's hard to be popular. Um, no, but I think, like, everyone has some version of that. Um, and so it's like thinking about, like, how do we redesign these systems to, um, like, I think of it as this sort of, like, one way mirror kind of model where it's like behind the mirror, you have like a creator who is making stuff and it's sort of like protected from the outside world and they can choose to interact with the outside world as much as they do or don't want to. And obviously they're sort of like influenced by the aggregate of it, yeah. but like people are not necessarily like, if I think about like an internet forum or something like sort of that, the classic model of collaboration and, and content creation, it's, it's right. everyone's kind of like pitching in together and having this conversation. But I think we're kind of moving towards this model of like, like it's just me and I'm going to field stuff and have to like filter through as much as possible of. Yeah. Yeah. In order to <clears throat> and I want to touch on that. I think that's a good example of sort of a broader interest. I, I see you as having as, <clears throat> you know, yeah, to be, to be sure you've, you've really, you've, you've focused on how can, can make a living. And in the last few years you've, you focused on open source and you've written a lot and you've, you have a book upcoming and you work for, you work for GitHub and, and protocol labs, but also, uh, and you, you experimented with your helium grants, your, your micro grants, uh, but I also see you as a a child of the internet, as as one might say, and also interested in how uh, people make meaning on the internet and how people uh, have friendships on the internet and how our uh, platforms are designed to, you know, help help create that or how they um, how they influence that. Would would you comment? Would you what would you say that these sort of bigger than than how people make money on the internet? You're in, interested in sort of how internet infuses in our our daily life, how we think, how we see other people. Yeah. I mean, again, I think it's why like some of this is sure. It's about like, how do you make a living doing this stuff full time? But like part of it is, I think very innate to the experience that we're all having online in some shape or form, which is just like, wow, I could talk to anybody. <laughs> uh, so how do I actually figure out how to filter for like the most important interactions without like pissing off other people? And it used to be maybe like, you know, it was obvious that you don't respond to, 
I don't know, maybe you just like don't respond to random people or something like that. And you only talk to people that you've know personally, but like even that at that, at, at a certain point is like, even if I filter for all the people I've met once, like I still can't respond to everyone. And you see these sort of like internet first relationships and friendships of yeah. um, like, sometimes it's really great to talk to random people. And so like, how do I actually mentally like filter around all of that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny. I feel like I've even been like personally experimenting with like, how do I maintain my friendships and relationships? And for me, it's like super blurry between like who's an internet friend versus a real life friend. And like some of my like Twitter friends I feel closer to in some respects than like real life friends and vice versa. Like newsletters have actually been really fun for this. Um, I do like a monthly newsletter update and, and over time, originally it was like a newsletter for keeping up to date with like all the open source research I was doing. But over over time, it kind of became more about like Nadia's personal thoughts and ramblings about the internet or whatever, um, which has just been a really fun uh, medium. And like, sure, I, I talked to like subscribers who I don't know at all, but like there are also people who subscribe who know me personally. And it's been actually kind of nice to have someone, if I'm catching up with them in person, to say like, oh, I saw your last newsletter about whatever. Um, and then it's like, oh, we don't have to do this like... How's it getting, going? Yeah, <laughs> they're getting each other up to speed kind of thing. Yeah. And I have friends who do like just even like smaller personal newsletters where they send stuff out like weekly or monthly being like, here's what I've been up to. And it's yeah. actually like a really nice way to keep in touch with people without having to like individually uh, right. keep up with everyone. So I feel like we're all sort of like figuring out these ways of adapting, but we're we're doing it all very slowly. Yeah, remind me, one of your newsletters, you you covered this guy who was building, what was it, a Memax or something? Oh, yeah, Memax, the, uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> the externalized brain. <laughs> Yeah, so you're interested in externalized brain. Let's, yeah. let's talk about this a little bit. <laughs> well, I think it, it kind of goes back to this again of um, there's so much content coming into our brains. How do we actually organize it and not keep it all in our heads? And I've noticed this, there's a sort of like philosophical – I think there's sort of like a philosophical difference between um, – like a lot of people talk about this like spaced repetition kind of thing of yeah. – uh, which to me philosophically is the approach of like how do I – my brain can retain more information than – it currently is and how do I like stuff as much as possible into there yeah um and then facts, I think facts, facts yeah just like more facts I mean like literally <laughs> yeah. it's like just for listeners I guess like it's this practice of um you know you have like flashcards or whatever and you're like repeatedly um reviewing facts or things you've learned about people the world whatever and like over time you uh you review them like over longer periods of time and then eventually it sticks in your memory better apparently than if you just learned it once and didn't think about it again um, and so that's sort of like one, I guess, way of thinking about it. Um, and then there's sort of like other people who like me, I guess, who are sort of like, uh, I, I trust my brain to like naturally filter for what it cares about and doesn't. I don't, I don't really want my brain to be this, like, uh, I, I don't think of it, I guess, as like a machine that I'm trying to like extract something out of. I think like it, whatever it's doing in there, I don't really know what's doing in there, but like it's doing a good job. And, uh, but at the same time, like I still have way more information and than I can like retain in my brain. And so I almost think of like an externalized brain as a way of like offloading that stuff into something else that I can access if needed. Um, but not, yeah, not having to keep it all in like active memory. And so for me, like they, like one of the things I do is I publish like all my, most of my private notes uh, online every month. And it's just like a page on my website or it's like throughout the month, I just write notes to myself on my own note-taking app. And then at the end of every month, I go through all my notes and I like, I post most of them except for like sensitive ones or whatever. Um, and it's just kind of a way of me being like, look, I don't have time to write a blog post about all this stuff. And like, I just kind of want to get it out there. This is like as close as it gets from like inside of Nadia's brain to like outside. And it's kind of nice to have this like, pages of just like notes that I publish online. And if someone else finds them interesting, cool. Um, 
if not, whatever, it's just there and I can reference it. And I've often found in like conversations on like Twitter or whatever, like sometimes someone says something like, oh man, that reminds me of this like note I had from whenever and I can like old school, like go back and like screenshot it and like respond with it or whatever. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's like. Right. And one of the things you've written about is that you uh, wish that there was a place where you can more naturally think out loud and see what others are thinking out loud and that Twitter and other platforms don't really satisfy that because the immediate sort of feedback loop of a like and comment what, what is it not doing there or, or what would what would that get like why is that yeah i think it's still filtering for something right like i guess the way i've started to think about social platforms is sort of on this like spectrum of like hyper public to like you know maybe like totally private just to you and then there's sort of like semi-private in between um but these are like there are gradations of like public to private spaces and what we expect from them. And so like just given the amount of people that are you are reaching and potentially interacting with on something like Twitter, like that's as public as if I were like saying something out loud on the street or something like that. And like there's some things like, you know, when I decide what I want to say out loud to say, I don't know, a group of strangers at a bus stop or something, like there is a filtering process, hopefully for most people that you go through of like what what can I say here or not. Um and so I think similarly we have that with something like Twitter. But then for me, like in there are these like semi-private spaces i think like newsletters podcasts are like really interesting emerging mediums for that um and then like we see like an interest in group chats or just yeah these places where the information is not necessarily hidden but like you kind of got to dig a little bit to get there and that kind of naturally filters out like who you're talking to and allows you to be a little bit more authentic um and then we of course have like super private spaces like me journaling to myself or whatever which is all the way on the other end of the spectrum but yeah so when i think about like like Twitter's still really great and I use it and like, I love it. Um, but the stuff I'm going to say on Twitter is just going to be like kind of different from the stuff that I feel comfortable publishing on like a random page on my website that is technically public. Anyone can go see it, but like, I'm not making a point of like advertising it. Right. It's a natural filtering mechanism for people who really want to see your stuff. Yeah. And I think that's, what's cool about the idea of just like externalizing your brain is it's not meant to reach everybody. Like, it, it's just a matter of saying, here's as much of myself that I can kind of like dump out into the world. And if you care enough, like you're basically like creating like a library or something of your brain. And if someone wants to dig around the archives of your library and like go through all the books and figure out what you're about, like, great, it's all publicly available, but you're not like forcing people to interact with it. Right. Yeah. So, and one element is, is creating something where people can more naturally think out loud in a less judgmental way so that you could, people kind of hunches and you could build on top of these hunches. There's another, uh, you know, Yancey Strickler had this post he linked to called The Dark Forest Theory of the Internet, where I think he was basically commenting if, you know, if Paul Graham had this post a few years ago, I forget what it's called, The Things You Can't Say or something like that, where he talked about how, you know, people with audiences are now not just not publishing anymore because, uh, or not publishing what they really think because the, uh, the upside is too low, the downside is too high relative to the upside. And maybe they're going to these, you know, quote unquote forests where there's, i.e., private chats. But is that just sort of another way of saying, just a space for reasonable people, i.e. no trolls, racists, or libs? <laughs> like, is that really what people are talking about when they talk about Dark Force? It's like everybody who can hear my thoughts without, like, canceling me. <laughs> sure. Like, I think to one extent, I mean, it depends on kind of what you want from it. But, like, yeah, to one extent, it's about, like, how do I filter out the, like, complete riffraff um, or undesirables or whatever so we can have a productive conversation. I think, like, maybe on a slightly more optimistic note, it's also about finding your tribe or your people. Like, when I think about the group chats that I, I'm active in, it's it's often just, like, friends that, like... And, you know, you can be in the same group chats with... Uh, like, there are different people crossing over between them where, like, sometimes, like, this particular configuration of friends is just, like, really great about, like, 
talking or joking yeah. or thinking through a certain set of topics than this other configuration of friends, which might include some of those people, but not all of them. Um, and so I really like that idea of just like curating the spaces that you have these conversations in. But yeah, I mean, like, I think a, this is where patronage and subscriber models get really interesting because like it is about finding like to me, it's sort of like this long-term realization of the like 1000 true fans kind yeah. of thing of like some conversations are great for reaching like everybody in the public and some things are just like nicer to have in a smaller space. And I do think we have like a finite limit to the amount of people we can let into that space and expect to have a reasonable conversation. Yeah. And and you also linked to an article that talked about how the thousand true fans is sort of not as glamorous as, as people think that it, that's really hard work. And there is the difference between sort of like, you know, you might have a thousand true fans in your newsletter, but you don't charge them. And that's sort of a different relationship than if you did. Maybe you'd feel more accountable. Like you can just take off a month in terms of your newsletter or, or, or how do you think about this? If, like I don't charge for on Twitter or, or my writing, but if I did, it'd be pretty different. How do you think about that? Yeah, it's actually funny. I have, probably would have had a different, I, I probably would have had a different take on this until recently, but my, my boyfriend actually just started, uh, uh, a paid newsletter over the weekend and like I guess he did it as an accountability mechanism which to me like I've always said I don't want to charge for my newsletter because I want this to be kind of freeform space for my thoughts and like I don't want to feel like I'm being paid to do it suddenly it's just not going to be as fun anymore um, whereas he took the opposite approach of like if I know that there are people that are like paying and waiting for me to respond it's like a great accountability mechanism to force me to write every week or whatever so now I guess I've seen both sides of it wow, and I can, I can see the value. Um, and it's the same thing in like open source where or anything, I think any creative work that people do as like a hobby, like sometimes introducing money can make people feel weirder about it. Sometimes it could be great. Right. Well, yeah. So the funny thing about like subscription models too is like people think of it as being like into perpetuity because it's recurring, but like something I would be really interested in seeing more people do is um, like limited runs of subscription models. Yeah. So uh, I did, do, I haven't charged five of these, but um, I did do two different podcast series um, that I hosted. And for the first one, we did it for two seasons. And then we kind of felt like we had, like, it was great, fun, had a great audience, um, but decided like we had learned what we wanted to learn. And so we like just wanted to stop after that. And then the second one I did was more of like, uh, more of like a passion project. And it really was just like me and the other person wanted to have a conversation and like decided to just do it as like a 10 episode like release and it, it was actually really like i like the constraint of we're just going to do one season and we're like not going to do anything else and it, for me it reminds me of like tv shows where you know like some shows run for like 10 seasons and you're just like oh my god like this isn't even good anymore um and then there's some that are like like two seasons and get like a really weird cult following around them yeah. and so yeah i mean like i don't think we have to be like obligated to do this stuff into perpetuity like yeah you could you could have a newsletter that you're running for like a year or two years and say, you know, I'm, I'm going to do like an annual subscription and like, that's it. And then we'll see if we have another run after that or something yeah. like that. Zooming out. So you, you have, uh, you've dabbled in nonprofit space, academia, uh, philanthropy, venture capital, and you were sort of disillusioned with, with parts of all of them. <laughs> and uh, it's not just you, it's, it's them. How would you sort of uh, characterize um, what, what what some of the problems you saw were or what they have in common or how that maybe led you to open source? Or Yeah, so I think like a really interesting, most of these things you're talking about, um, 
they all kind of run on grant funding of some shape or form, or you're, you don't exactly know what you're getting for when you pay for something. It's sort of like this person is doing interesting work and we fund them to think out loud or something like that, um, which is sort of the problem that I keep chewing on over and over again in different permutations. I think a lot of the perceived issues around like academia or nonprofits or philanthropy are that they aren't really tied to any sort of output. And so it's like, you end up seeing these sort of like weirdly bloated or overly institutionalized um, situations where like people are just sort of like running on grant funding without any accountability. And so it ends up naturally swinging towards um, at least like with, I mean, it depends on the space, but like with like nonprofits, for example, like uh, you can have like certain non like I think philanthropy has gotten really good at basically like the growth stage kind of funding of, uh, of nonprofits where like the really big nonprofit organizations like still run on grant funding and have these like regular, funders but then it's like well what about like the seed stage version of that where it's like uh how do you fund like innovation how do you find like interesting individuals and give them money and there are a lot of like reasons why that's not super easy to do right now um so if you think about like academia which i actually think is it, it almost i think it gets like too much flack uh these days of being this like totally broken institution. Cause like, if you think about it, it's actually pretty cool that we like created this entire system and economy uh, for like people to think and research all day and put their stuff out there. Um, at least that's the, the dream or the goal or whatever. Um, but if you think about like what it takes to do that, like getting a PhD takes a really long time. Um, not everyone wants to go through that whole funnel. Uh, getting tenure is like not guaranteed and requires uh, like if, you know, citations and publishing papers is your metric of reputation and success, like not all the work that people do in academia fits neatly into that. And so like in some ways having such a mature system uh, constrains the sort of like interesting, weird thinking that people can do. Yeah. Um, and same thing with science where it's like, yeah, interesting, weird scientists who just want to like experiment and uh, and don't necessarily want to get into this like grant funding kind of treadmill, like where like – how, how do they actually fund that? And so, yeah, I think like the disillusionment or the kind of griping that I'll hear about and also personally feel around a lot of these institutions has to do more with maybe seeing the signs of like a mature grant based economy. But I think like in some ways it's actually pretty cool to see that like that has even been institutionalized at all. Um, but then in other ways it's like, well, like, yeah, what are, what are the ways we can kind of offer things more in the early stage seed stage side of just like, weird, interesting individuals doing cool things. And so that's why I'm like really interested in like independent researchers. And like, uh, if we just sort of see, at least I feel like I've been noticing more and more people that are just like writing about interesting stuff or like, uh, sharing that on Twitter or, uh, doing, uh, newsletters or whatever. Um, just like content creators. And, and if they're just doing it their own accord as their own, like interesting people, like there are probably different kinds of models we can think of for supporting them besides the institutions that exist right now. Right. And you spent some time in venture and you were excited about some of the things there, but you, you sort of felt, and not the words in your mouth, that it didn't, that there was a whole class of people of which venture could never, was not appropriate to, and, and they needed a, a funding model as well. Yeah. It's funny. I think I've gone, in some ways, I disagree with past self and in other ways, I agree with it more, maybe, of, yeah, there's something sort of underserved for, people that are generating interesting ideas and creating interesting content and putting it out in the world. Like I don't think VC is usually like the right path for them. Um, in other ways, I think I've come to appreciate venture capital as 
like one thing I thought about is like whether it's the business model for philanthropy itself of because you're tied to market returns, like you actually end up getting like venture funding actually like funds a lot of weird risky things that they know aren't going to return. So in some sense, you actually see a parallel to philanthropy there where like they would never call them grants, but you know, there are definitely investments that just like don't do well and it's fine because someone else like subsidizes it essentially. Right. Uh, which is actually pretty cool to think about. And I've, I think I've gained some appreciation for that. And, and just the fact that like, yeah, you'll really know whether stuff paid off or not. Um, which is not, it's a lot harder to measure that kind of success in pure philanthropy. But yeah, I think like it's, there's a different class of just like, interesting people doing weird stuff that like, you know, they're not going to necessarily like the idea of like starting a company around that sometimes just, I mean, it doesn't even make sense. Um, and so there needs to be some other kind of like business model or way of thinking about it. And I think like grant funding is an interesting way to kind of fill all these like pre market opportunities or maybe like opportunities that just don't necessarily fit into the market in the same sort of way that I'm interested in exploring. Yeah. And, and the question is that, you know, government, sponsored funding and research led to a lot of innovations around the internet. And was that sort of a coincidence that, that, that happened or was there something inherent about public spending that is better or different than private spending? Because we're seeing a lot of public spending, you know, things like space and, and even, you know, military with now Android and stuff like go, go more private. And is that uniformly good thing that we should all be excited about? Yeah, I've had my views challenged on this recently, so I don't actually even know how strongly I feel in any direction anymore. Like, I guess one view that I've had is that public goods have generally historically been funded by the government, um, or we have a government, like the reason government exists is to be able to cover those kinds of things that we don't have to think about, like, how do we raise money to pay for like the roads outside or our sewage and plumbing or whatever, or just like someone else thinks about that kind of stuff for us. And it's interesting to see there are like historical examples of like initiatives that started as like were initially funded by philanthropy, like our 911 system or libraries were funded by Andrew Carnegie um, that eventually became to be more associated as like government kind of programs. I've generally felt, I guess, more bearish on the idea that government plays that role now. I'm open to, I guess, being challenged on that. And like maybe it's just that everything on the internet is so new that. <laughs> Like it's just taking government time to catch up. But I, I, I feel like I've seen like a really strong divide between like government still does a, it, it still does a job, I guess, of uh, dealing with our like physical world kind of public goods, but it hasn't really caught up that fast with online public goods. And so online, like, especially because like there isn't like a government of the internet, right? Yeah. Um, there's sort of like de facto governments. Like I think a lot of our platforms like essentially play that role, but yeah, I mean like, who would even really be responsible, like which government is even responsible for some of these things. Um, and so I, you see sort of like instead like citizens or just like individual people that are coming together to fund these kinds of public goods, which is yeah. where crowdfunding, patronage, subscription models, et cetera, just become interesting. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know that I feel for sure. If we're talking about like military space, maybe that that's a whole other level of funding that's separate. But when we think about like, like any sort of like creative work is a public good. And like the way that stuff kind of gets funded, I think is more from individuals than we can expect from government. Yeah. You, you've written about how, you know, uh, the super wealthy today don't have the same philanthropic sort of instinct that perhaps they had in the past because maybe we have more of an ethos of liberalism or individualism today. 
you know, I just read The Sovereign Individual this weekend and it talked about how we are going to tra- you know, transform uh, from seeing ourselves as citizens to seeing ourselves as customers. And when you see yourself as a customer, you're not going to you know, pay for something that doesn't help you necessarily. And then also um, you've thought about in different contexts, just private versus public good. You know, you've thought about social media platform context. But I guess if, in the world in which we transform from citizens to customers, do we see like, well, is there a public good? Like, how, how do we what comes to mind here for you? Yeah, I mean, I do push back on the idea of customers in, in a transactional sense of like, I think this becomes especially challenging in the realm of content because like one of the biggest misconceptions I think we still have about content is that when you, that you're paying for the content versus paying for the person behind the content or paying for a sense of membership or closeness, which I think parallels this question around people, I think will be interested in funding these kinds of public goods. If they kind of draw, if it helps them draw a boundary around who they are as like members of something like an idea society whatever so sorry this is a little bit abstract but like yeah if you imagine like an individual charging for subscriptions to their paid newsletter or whatever like you're not paying to get the newsletter like it's not really about the content you're paying to be part of that person's like secret special group or whatever um and in that sense i think people are making meaning for themselves around like like what what is my social space or like what am i a citizen of right and I think it's going to look more tribalistic than in the past or just more like localized where, yeah, and like no one is a part of like the Twitter community, right? Like, I mean, what does that even mean? But like I, I might consider myself part of like tech Twitter or whatever. There's some like there's some smaller version of that and like you can get even more atomized than that. And so, yeah, I think like part of it is like we're yeah i think part is just like we're we're starting trying to make meaning for ourselves in like much smaller spaces yeah it is interesting you know product that you talk about like product on community at what scale would it have to get at which it no longer becomes a community or was it always ever? Or was it ever yeah. yeah yeah do you have a line <laughs> i mean yeah i thought about product Hunt specifically but like sure i mean like with any i guess new company there's, there's probably some early ethos of like people are just like very excited about it early on but yeah, I don't. I, I don't. You just come with community of communities, like Reddit, like is Reddit community of communities. Yeah, I mean it's funny because like there is something to be said about like a Reddit user. Like you can kind of picture like who that person is, but then your deeper affiliation might be to like a subreddit, um, which is your actual community. Okay, so then you discovered the biggest blind spot on the internet, which is one of the posts that you wrote is basically what got you most excited about open source. This sort of dissonance between what people thought about it and what it actually was, and and those two. Main points being that people thought that it was a lot of people or that it was a very collaborative uh, effort to, to, to be a maintainer and that they were doing it for the just for the love. Whereas, hey, like anybody else, they would like to make some money doing it. And it was actually very solo. It was a very small percentage of people maintaining, you know, a lot of core uh, infrastructure for the Internet. Yeah, that was definitely the part that got me super excited um, or just like really caught my eye because I wasn't even necessarily looking to get interested in open source. I didn't know anything about open source going into it. And like, honestly, like sometimes I wish I had found something easier to talk about at cocktail parties to be perfectly honest. But yeah, I mean, I was looking for the the part that really caught my eye about talking to open source developers was realizing that there was this understated narrative around like, there's a very, very strong rhetoric around open source software being this thing that is built by like a community of developers. And you have this mental image of everyone kind of rolling up their sleeves and pitching in, 
And in reality, it was a, a lot of these projects that were like super widely used by like millions of people relied on by like, you know, biggest companies out there that, you know, we're all sort of indirectly relying on were being maintained by like individuals. Um, and they didn't feel like it was very collaborative at all. And I got extra interested in it when I realized like talking to friends of mine who did have more familiarity with open source that like a lot of them were super dismissive and they were just like, no, that's not really how open source works. Like you don't understand, like it's actually fine. It's this like gifting economy and everyone's very intrinsically motivated to participate. And I was just like, this doesn't line up with like, you know, the stories I'm hearing. Um, so that's what compelled me to dig deeper. And yeah, over time over the past, whatever number of years I've been looking at it, uh, my own views have been challenged around like, it's like, okay, we, we've identified that a lot of these projects are run by individuals instead of by communities. Like, what do we do about that? And like the earlier hypothesis I think I was testing or coming in with was you need to get more people to contribute. Um, and it's sort of like, this is a problem. We need to get it back to the state of like being a more communal thing and people pitching in. And I think that view got especially tested like the more developers I, and the more projects I got to know at, at GitHub and realizing like, no, there's actually something deeper going on here where like, that narrative might have never been true. <laughs> it might have just been like, to me, it parallels again, this sort of like the early internet days where you had this like, uh, really like a cult around like openness and this like dogma of openness and, uh, like everything needs to be open and everything is like super communal and participatory. Uh, and then you kind of see the reality of how things shake out at scale. And it's like, no, not everyone is participating and pitching in on things. Like this stuff usually falls in the hands of like, a couple of people and then a lot of other people like consume and benefit from it. Um, and so I, I was sort of forced to rethink a little bit around like, well, like what if we assume that this isn't wrong, but this is actually just a new way of being. Um, and like, how should those maintainers think about managing their projects? Um, maybe it's not about getting more people to participate and contribute. Maybe for them, it's about like filtering the noise of their interactions or learning how to like rely on automation to like, do remove some of the manual work that they have to do and things like that. And so then I started getting really interested in like, what are the adaptive strategies that these um, individual developers are dealing with to manage like thousands of interactions with yeah, casual participants. Um, and then realizing that that actually mirrored a lot of like what other like content creators are doing today, whether it's on Instagram or Twitch or YouTube or whatever, it's like you have this model of like, one person that is like putting out a lot of stuff and like tons of people are con consuming it. Um, and there aren't always clear barriers between like someone who's purely viewing or consuming versus like, uh, participating. Like that's a much grayer spectrum than our products are currently designed for. And so, yeah, if, how, how does everyone learn how to adapt to that kind of world? Right. And, and you, you made some analogies from, you know, maintainers to, you looked at other like journalists or researchers or, you know, YouTube creator, how do, what sort of was, or streamers, what was sort of similar or different or, or something you found interesting comparing maintainers to well, a different group? The, I guess the one big thing that is different is like code actually runs in production. Yeah. Um, so the, like, I see a lot of parallels between like thinking of code as content or thinking of open source maintainers as creators. But like a primary difference is that if like, if a YouTube, uh, creator decide to stop making more videos like nothing in the world will necessarily break like right. people will be sad but they'll move on whereas if a maintainer decides to stop like if, if someone like pulls down their code then sometimes the, the problem can be fixed very quickly but like it actually has very real effects on like 
everyone else and yeah. the software that is like actively relying on it. Um, and so I've gone back and forth between like whether the right narrative, the original narrative that I kind of pushed forward um, in the research I did was thinking of um, open source code as infrastructure. So like everyone is relying on this stuff. It's like one person who's maintaining a project that is used by like millions of people or whatever. Um, and that this is a form of infrastructure in the same way that like roads are a form of, in, of, of physical infrastructure. Um, this is the infrastructure that like all of our software relies on. And I still think that's true with relation to the code itself. But then, yeah, then you have this other narrative that's sort of like the people behind it are like other content creators um, or influencers or whatever. But I think overly leading on that narrative kind of uh, can can sort of undervalue the like the very real dependencies that are there. Like, yeah, if if a maintainer doesn't feel like responding to like a critical security vulnerability that has been reported to them, like there could actually be very serious repercussions. Yeah. Um, I just did a podcast with a couple partners from Benchmark and it was on infrastructure, open source investing. And they mentioned that they've like has it a dozen or so companies that have, are, they call open source companies that are, are unicorns. So there's a lot of money that's been made. I guess it just hasn't flowed back to the people who actually created it. Yeah. And to some extent, I think that's a problem with like all protocols, right? Yeah. If we think of, uh, if open source code is like infrastructure, it's a lot like protocols, which like often don't capture the value. Right. But people were excited about that in crypto. <laughs> yeah, they're excited about it. We'll see what actually pans out, right? Right. Do you think that there was some just misunderstanding there? Or is it all, who knows, it's really something? Yeah, it's, I could speculate on a lot of things, um, but I think it's, cool. jury's still out. So, yeah. The... How do you think about um, open science? I was asking a, a science friend if, um, you know, could a GitHub for science work? And she's like, uh, wouldn't make any money. <laughs> um, uh, but a lot of people are interested in, in, in science. How does open source as it relates to science make sense? Yeah. So similarly, I think in both cases, open source software and open science both have their roots in this philosophy of openness, right? Like um, it comes from, I think, like right now I would say we're almost in the era of like filtering or maybe like more closed or something like that. We're all trying to like rediscover meaning from this extreme openness. Um, and we're all trying to like contend with our generational predecessors who were like really pushing this narrative of openness. And now we're like, ah, maybe like totally open is not so great after all. Um, and so both of them had their roots in this, like in both cases, it was just like, we should be making this stuff as available as possible. I think the, big difference between open source and open science is that science is very closely intertwined with academia and um, academia has a reputation economy already in the form of papers and citations. And so if you're making all your stuff super, super open, <laughs> you're basically undercutting your own work and reward there. Right. Whereas like, I think part of why open source software could take off was because so many developers were doing this stuff in their spare time. Um, they could have a day job as a developer writing whatever software, and then they could do like open source inside. And like the fact that it was so much of like, it was such a hobby for so many people meant that like, they didn't really care about capturing the value. And like, maybe that's come back now to bite them. But I think that really helped get it off the ground. Whereas like with open science, like it seems like there has been a little bit of like a stagnation around like, well, how much stuff can you really make open? Because like you're actually just undercutting your own value as a right. scientist. If you're... Why hasn't there been a parallel reputation economy 
in academia the same way perhaps there has been with developers, right? GitHub is parallel reputation economy to LinkedIn, for example, for developers. Yeah, well, I would actually say it's maybe the other way around of like, academia does have reputation economy in the form of citations. Yeah. Um, the question is like, how good is it or yeah. not? <laughs> and yeah, it's just like, it isn't it's, it, in itself its own like closed system and it's cl- it's a closed economy that only really functions if everyone's participating in it yeah. uh, within like the context of academic institutions, right? And so like, it's it's weird, I guess, if, if you wanted to reframe like academic research as another form of content creation, right? Yeah. Then you would say, well, like how do other content creators monetize their reputations? Like in my dream world, you would have more of these people that are just like sharing their thoughts and insights out directly on Twitter and like monetizing through a newsletter or whatever, you know, long form writing that people pay and subscribe to. Um, that would be really, really cool. It's really hard when like, they've sort of been trained and their context and their peers and everything is like contained in this very closed shell system of academia that like to break out of it is it's sort of, I mean, it's sort of like, I don't know, like being Amish or something and leaving the Amish. It's like, you can't, and I don't mean that pejoratively in either direction. No, no, that's where you came from, right? (laughs) 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 But yeah, they, they like, it's, it's, it's just that like anytime you have that sort of like closed system, like if, if you defect, then it's like, you either got to make like a hard defect yeah. or like, or not. Yeah. That reminds me of another thing. You you were saying how, um, you know, we too much openness and now we're trying, you know, trying to filter or curate. You, you've also thought a little bit about privacy and how, how does that segue into sort of your, your thoughts on, on privacy and sort of the gradations of privacy? Yeah. I mean, it's sort of what we were talking about earlier in, in this conversation about we, I think like we're, we're starting to see this like natural filtering and segmenting of uh, different types of, social tools, I guess, for lack of a better term, that serve different kinds of needs where, yeah, sometimes you want to have conversations that are in like smaller spaces and sometimes you're going to have them in like very big public spaces. But like, I think maybe we used to have this sense of, well, why can't I say this online? And, you know, everyone's, uh, if I say this, I get all these repercussions or whatever. And like, there's some part of me that's sympathetic to that. And there's some part of me that's like, I think we're just kind of naturally, naturally learning to filter ourselves in different types of public or private spaces. So, I mean, there are things I'll say on a podcast that I wouldn't say on Twitter for sure. And it's not that one is literally like more private than the other in the sense that like you can access both of those, but the person that takes the time to like listen to a podcast about me and then like, you know, it's, it's, and it's a lot harder to like take a snippet out of, out of context and like tweet it out or something. Um, I'm more willing to be open about my thoughts than I I would be just on like Twitter. Canceled. Yeah, I'm like asking for it now. Um, so you're very excited about uh, newsletters. Uh, you're excited about blogs. You know, creators. Let's talk about journalism for a second. Well, I guess one broad question is like, do we need Wired or Salon or like any of these sites anymore if people can just you know go, go direct? Yeah, I honestly don't know. I mean, not to call out specific firms or anything like that. I, I think like. Like my understanding of newspapers is like the very, very biggest ones will be fine. Like New York Times or whatever is going to be fine. And then like everyone in the middle is kind of going to get squished. And I think, yeah, I, I don't necessarily think that transition is going to be pretty, but I think there is a lot to be optimistic about, as I've said earlier, of just like, yeah, like why, why, why? why not follow the specific person that I find interesting as opposed to a broader media brand that has a lot of garbage that I don't care about. Um, I think like there's still always going to be a place for say like breaking news or, um, or just like keeping up with like 
yeah, what's going on in the world. But like, I think actually that that level of reporting is just going to end up getting distributed out to like, let's say Twitter or whatever, where like a lot of news can get broken on Twitter or like you get people's weird takes um, about, and not, I just keep using Twitter as an example, but whatever. And yeah, like if we don't necessarily, if that doesn't necessarily need to be an entire article that is like written out um, like that, that part of the, I guess like journalism needs market or whatever is going to get served by a different product entirely. Like, I think it's almost like we need to kind of carve up like what is journalism actually for? And like, like what are the different kinds of content that yeah. get put out? Cause I feel like people always talk about this like abstract of like, it's like, well, yeah, people write articles about a lot of different things. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, for like kind of deeper thoughtful takes or just industry specific takes, like, yeah. Why, why can't individuals uh, take up that role? Yeah, it's interesting. The athletic has been so successful yeah. with sport subscription based sports journalism. Um, and it's, it's brought sort of it's a business model for local journalism for sports. And the question is, how far does that is there being athletic for lots of different industries or is there something sort of unique about sports and and even you know ben thompson the critique of of stratechery uh, for x is hey that works for ben but how many people will it really work for and substack is hoping that a lot more <laughs> yeah i think this like it's kind of it's it, it feels a little bit like deja vu from open source also yeah. where like there are some specific examples of open source developers who have managed to strike it out on their own and like full-time living based on like subscriptions or sponsorships or whatever writing open source code. But like people often look at those and say, well, it's just like, you know, that specific person, like how many of those are really out there? And I feel like it's sort of like, we're like, we're like negging content creators or something where we're sort of like, I don't know. I, 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 I maybe it's just good to be, maybe everyone's just being realistic, but I kind of see it as like, Hey, there are a couple of like really interesting breakout examples. And like, maybe we should figure out what's working there and like, continue to expand upon that instead of being like well you know this is really a hobby for most people like it's kind of cute that we have one or two like full-time examples but it's like i almost just feel like people aren't like dreaming big enough to be like oh maybe something fundamentally different is happening here and we can actually replicate that elsewhere uh, i want to zoom out and, and talk a bit about the sort of let's talk about the creator economy and how that sort of evolved so if my straw man here is like there was UGC, um, and that's YouTube and, and other, you know, Zanga and <laughs> live journal. Oh, I'm just talking about my, my, what I was up to. And then there's, uh, you know, ad based, you know, way to, um, make, you know, monetize. Then there's subscription based with Patreon and Kickstarter and, and then, and that's if your stuff was really good. And then there's, you know, things like Substack if your stuff's not that good. I'm kind of joking. <laughs> I love Substack, but they're just like the, the bar has gotten lower for you to make money on the internet. <laughs> for somebody to make money out of you. wow you're negging content creators eh? <laughs> yeah the bar has never been lower everybody <laughs> so i mean I, I don't know how would you describe sort of the evolution of of content create and where are we now and like is patreon gonna win i don't know like wh- wh- who makes money <laughs> off this on, on the back end i think the winners are gonna be people that find very niche audiences in a like Sure, like display advertising is really about like building a really, really big audience and then being able to monetize off that. And I think like we kind of have to readjust how we think about this of if you are just one person and you're not trying to, you know, build an entire media company around yourself or whatever, you're not trying to raise venture capital or whatever, you're just trying to be you writing about your shit, then yeah, I mean, like there are people who can make a very decent living on like not that many people. And so I think like this one, like, 
I guess one of the, the cool things about like when I think about like the internet at scale or just like uh, how our social interactions have scaled, like early days, people talked a lot about like globalizing and, and yeah. about like, oh, we're going to take all these little, uh, we're going to create this sort of like sense of like a global community or whatever. Yes. And now it's like, so global village. not that. <laughs> global village. That's what people global. said. Yeah. That village, was Marshall McLuhan. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, I actually think it, it's going to look something more like highly specialized, focused, weird niches that are like, those are the things that are scaling, if that makes sense. So like it's made it possible for people with very weird interests to find other people with their very weird interests. And then like stuff that might've been previously very fringe or strange, or you were like the one person you knew that was really into this thing for good. And for, you know, this is also where I think we see like conspiracy theories or whatever that now find validation for, for their views. But whatever the case, like you're seeing people sort of like doubling down on their like niche, super localized interests, but being able to experience it on a global scale. And so to me, that's like super ripe for subscription models because like you're looking for people that are just like rapidly obsessed with whatever it is you're doing and are, yeah, more interested in it than your average casual person. And it's fine. You don't have to have mainstream appeal. You can just, again, you get like a thousand people who really care about it. And like, yeah, that's a business. You know, I want to talk about the local global thing for a second because it's interesting that, you know, some people, when they complain, they complain about being lonely or the increasing atomization or that nobody has the same reality that they have. And so the alienation that comes from that. And so people want belonging, Nadia. <laughs> people want to be part of something bigger than themselves. And, and guess what? Also, we have global problems like climate change and AI <laughs> and nuclear proliferation that we need, we need global coordination. So, I mean, is it infinitely local? I mean, how, like infinitely local is just you and yourself, <laughs> right? Like how do you, do you see sort of an increase towards global cohesion? Like, um, or is it just infinitely atomized? I have no idea. I think part of the constraints, frankly, I think like we are constrained by our physical world to some extent of like, we're used to thinking of ourselves as like, Government as like a geographic concept is like made sense in a physical world, but it doesn't really make sense in like an online world. And so when we think about coordination, it's almost like confusing to be like, yeah. well, who, what member of a group do I belong to and who is my community? And like, I think like just one of the big unanswered things everyone is just trying to do in some shape or form is like trying to figure out how to draw boundaries around their tribes. And like, it's funny to think about something like filter bubbles, which were seen as a largely negative thing. Like, I don't know, whatever, five, 10 years ago. Um, something that people were like worried about. And now it's almost coming the other direction of like, Oh God, we, we need to find our filter bubbles again because like <laughs> yeah. this just isn't working. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think it would be so bad if we ended up with like super localized communities, but I, yeah, I do wonder if there's maybe some natural consolidation of some of those communities. Well, in, in, in the future world, maybe it's decades, maybe it's longer where, you know, governments become startups and there's a competition for, for where to live. I'm curious, basically it, and this is directly related, does it result in like thousand, you know, uh, Israels and Singapore's and, you know, small city states with their own unique Norway, you know, unique characteristics or, you know, people do love to be part of big shit. Like, you know, Michigan football games, <laughs> like people love to be part, part of stuff. So I don't know. That's where I think like your characterization of just everyone being super lonely. Like, I don't, I don't think, look, actually, like, it seems more that we have we're, ha we're developing better filtration mechanisms for finding your true tribes, right? Versus, like, I don't think it has to be lonely at all. Speak for yourself. Um, <laughs> yeah, actually, like, I, man, I, I, it, it seems easier to me now to find people that, like, 
are suited to your interests than ever before. Um, I mean, that's just the weird, like internet kid in me talking or yeah. something, but rub it um, into all our yeah. listeners. Out <laughs> yeah. There. yeah. So they actually, I've thought about a bunch recently was like, like whether we're like, I think about these like generational moments that kind of define maybe us or like a parents generation or you know, we can all think of at least, you know, in the U S it was like, 9-11, uh, like JFK assassination, bombing of Pearl Harbor or whatever. And like you, you talk about this or you have this, uh, visual of people just like gather around a TV or whatever and just like watching this thing unfold together. Um, and I wonder whether we're going to continue to have generational moments like that. Like what would the generational moment be of the next generation? I guess we can't predict that now, but like because we don't have that visual of everyone gather around the same TV or the proverbial TV, um, experiencing the same thing at the same time, like if everything kind of breaks up into these like, uh yeah filtered local tribes or whatever like we're all maybe having like quote-unquote generational moments for our specific tribe as opposed to like a stranger on the street who i could turn to and say like you know where were you yeah. at uh 9-11 like is i i don't know what i would say to them right what's interesting i, I wonder because everything you said is true but i also think that the biggest moments you know they're trending on facebook or trending on twitter everyone is seeing them like when Drake and Ninja were streaming, or like a lot of people were watching that. And Fortnite like, broke. There's just yeah, there's just so many of them that is just death by, you know, by a thousand you know viral things. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, I mean, right? It's true for memes and everything. It's just like everything just kind of like flares up faster and then dies faster, and we forget about it faster. So like, there aren't as many like long-lasting, defining generational moments. I liked your line of, in the future, everyone will be canceled for 15 minutes. It's not my line. It's Gordon Moore's. But yes, I really wish I had thought of that because I think that's true. So another um, idea you've had is that people are vessels for ideas. Talk about that. Why isn't it the opposite? <laughs> um, maybe just because I find it more peaceful that way or something. I don't know. Or... Yeah, I definitely was thinking about – I wrote, like, a blog post about that. Um, I was definitely feeling a little bit angsty at that moment of, like uh, – something I said to friends were, but, like, I, I wish that someone – maybe someone has written this, and if so, someone should point me to it, of, like, uh, we had this, like, zero to one concept or whatever, but, like, the, like, one to two is also yeah. just as hard of uh, – you find success with one thing, and, like, do you ever, like – can you replicate that, um, like – yeah, what does it look like to be a second time founder in Silicon Valley after you've had one really big success? And like, I think it's very easy to whatever, just like criticize those people or hold them to really high standards. And like, but it's like, it's kind of crazy when you think about it. Like, they could have just stopped after their first success, but they went on and did something else again. And it becomes really hard to break out of the reputation of your first time success. And so, yeah, that was sort of like one aspect I was thinking about with like people's vessels for ideas and i guess maybe the other just being that like yeah i i find it uh more peaceful maybe to think about like an idea you're you're just sort of like a conduit for an idea that seizes hold of you and like maybe you're the person that like amplifies that idea out to the world um but then once you've kind of amplified it out like that idea kind of takes hold in like other people and then it's kind of spreads around like a virus and i think i like experienced to a small scale of this uh, sort of with, with open source stuff of like not everyone who's gotten really excited about funding open source developers has a, a position on it that I necessarily agree with. Yeah. Whereas like, I think very vividly to like 2015 or whatever, when I was first talking to people about it and like, there was a lot more unity around like this stuff is interesting or whatever. Cause there just weren't as many people interested in it. And now like I hear just like, I mean, I, I can't keep up with everything that's happening now, but 
there are people that will just like be excited about it's almost like weird if they say, you know, like I was directly inspired or excited by your work, but then they're doing something that like I totally would not yeah. be doing. And it, you feel this sort of sense of like, oh, I, I, but that was like, you know, that was like, I had this thesis or I had this position. Inspired this harder. <laughs> like, like, you totally missed the message. Yeah. Right. Um, but I think that's not actually the right take. I think it's, it, it, t- it just takes a little bit to be like, oh, right. Like it's not, it's not my idea. I don't know. You know, it's just like, something that passed through me and maybe I helped amplify um, along with a lot of other people and like, they're going to take it in this direction. And maybe that's actually like how these things live on. I'm curious to talk a bit about uh, identity and in the same way that physical governments didn't make sense, transposing them onto the internet, maybe, you know, one identity or a real identity doesn't make sense. Transpo- I mean, it certainly works for Facebook, but uh, in terms of the future of the internet, how do you think about identity as it's, you know, how do you think about transposing it on the internet? Is it, plural is it pseudonymous is how do we think about anonymity how do we think about real identity and and yeah and there is sort of a broader question about like you know things being transposed onto the internet and then the internet version becoming the mainstream version of it instead of just the e version of does that make sense like it was like e-comic or e-commerce but pretty soon it's just going to be commerce and that's the internet as we trans in the same way that transposing government onto the internet didn't exactly work like a one-to-one identity you know copy didn't make sense when we think about real name on the internet. Right. And then as the internet dominates more and more of our lives, how will identity be shaped? Pseudonymous, plural. I mean, it's kind of cool to see people with like alts. I mean, this is common on Instagram and, and Twitter of like, I guess I had used previously thought of alts as like, you're trying to hide something. You're trying to see something dark here, right? Like there's something you do not want to be discovered yeah. here. Um, but I think like a lot of people create alts, not because they are desperately trying to hide some secret part of themselves but because they're just like eh, i just don't want this tied to like my legal name or whatever and it's like more common even outside the u.s um of yeah like and like some people are just like super comfortable with like of course i'm gonna have like all these different disposable throwaway identities and i think it's actually a pretty interesting way to even thinking about in, in relation to like people as vessels for ideas that like if you don't want an idea to become too tightly bound to your identity you can do it under a pseudonym or you can do it under, there has to be some sort of like, yeah, so you can like detach it and throw it away if you want to. Um, you know, right now we don't have reputation systems on the internet. Well, we, or, or we, there's no Yelp for people. <laughs> um, there, uh, and there will someday, right? There'll be different versions of it. And the like, for example, should the people who, let's think of a Yelp for VC. That's an easy thing that should exist at some point is, will the people who are comment, should they be the real name, should be anonymous? Like, what are the, you know, secret was sort of the poster child and yik yak for sort of the dangers of anonymity? Well, we have smarter anonymity. Crypto maybe presents a way to provide accountability to anonymity. Do you care? Should I just, <laughs> just switch topics? I care somewhat. Um, yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know that it's inevitable that we will have something like yeah. a Yelp for people or that, like, reputation is so context dependent. That anytime I try to like really think about how it would work, at least in its most literal form, it's like pretty hard for me to. Well, even a customized Yelp, for, like um, like you and a Netflix, for example, you see the thing that's most like suited for you. <laughs> but how would you find that? Um, I guess you'd have to watch them. So you have, you tell what, what you let you know. People, yeah. <laughs> Walk me through your algorithm here. So there's a Pandora version where you you say what people you want to meet, and then it gives you. But then there's also like you describe. In the same way that I am like, you should meet this person and you would connect over these types of things. You can imagine Facebook with all the data they have. You can imagine being like, hey, this person relates to these people. So you might share these things in common. Sure. I mean, like, I guess, like, I think about like 
mutual follows on social platforms is like essentially a version of this. Um, but even those things have limitations, which isn't to say that they shouldn't exist, but like, like, yeah, I don't know. I, there's only so much that someone, like, I guess my, my, the fundamental question I'm trying to ask is like, how do you, how do you actually map someone's personality well enough to be able to rec- like recommend them to others? And yeah. unless you're going for this purely recommender system of like other people like, yeah, yeah. Other people you trust, uh, recommend, and, and that's what we do. Off that'll be the online version of what we do offline, and that'll be an improvement. Yeah, I mean it's an improvement, but like at least on Twitter, I feel like it often becomes purely mimetic. Where like sometimes, I mean, like sometimes it's just like people follow you or talk to you just because they perceive that other people think that you're yes. interesting, and it's like there's actually like no substance here. Yeah, it's a Ponzi scheme. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I actually wonder that. I'm like, is this just like whole like social reputation thing is a bubble? I mean, so yeah, that's the downside of like building it purely off of like mutual recommendations. Um, and then yeah, in terms of like what's inherently good about someone or inherently interesting, I think is actually like pretty tough. Um, when you're originally talking about like reputation systems or like VCs, or whatever, I, I was thinking specifically just about like how these things become a place for people to grape. Right. I mean, it's true even of Yelp. Yeah. Like you have one in five star reviews, right? And right. So you get the but if re- you had real name, you're less likely to grape. Uh, yeah. If you're reporting with your real name. Yes. Yeah. But then you're staking your reputation on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I sort of have the broader thing that like if some if there's data that's in people's heads and that data is valuable, it's going to exist on the internet. <laughs> it might not Maybe. be perfect. It might not be one. It's not going to be one to one. Well, this is the question for me around like there are like VC operates on the asymmetry of information that is traded to valuable people, right? Like there's a whole dark market of information around yeah. who's worth talking to and who's not. And like the reason why you can't really, although people have tried and the reason I guess I'm just like personally don't believe that you can have a venture firm that's based purely on like data or public signaling or whatever is because like the best signals are not public. And I think to some extent that's always true of any social recommender yeah. system is Right. Yeah, you got to earn that stuff, and yeah. it's not super obvious how to get it. You, you've, you've written about uh, how you know we thought that AngelList or Crunchbase would lead to sort of the best deals being public, and yet they're not. They're not right. There's so many promises around this of like, oh, we have the data, and if someone just curated it, then, but then it's like, if everyone can do that, then it's not valuable anymore. Right. It's inherently based on some form of scarcity, and right. as soon as that scarcity becomes abundance, people just find it. Go to a new club. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've had some. Um, very fuzzy thoughts in this that I keep meaning to put into a blog post and I can't figure out how to quite write about it. But like there are some kinds of problems that can't, that like can't quite be externalized um, because as soon as they are, they become immediately less valuable. Yeah. I'm curious how things change more on subscription from advertising to subscription. Some, some people have said, you know, advertising business model is what's wrong with all, you know, all discourse on the internet Others, uh, you know, Balaji says that, hey, when journalism becomes subscription-based, it's going to be even worse. Like, people are going to, you know, fragment into, it's going to be even more polarized. And and ValueWag is going to have their, you know, whatever, subscriber base and all these other sort of rags are going to have theirs. And it's and they're really going to pander to what those people want. I have questions over, would people really pay for that type of gossip? Like, is it that valuable that you'd pay for it? But I guess, how do you think about subscription as it relates to polarization? Or how do we make the internet less polarized? <laughs> Well, I think, again, to even ask the question of how to make the internet less polarized assumes that we're all this global community working to cooperate with each other. And 
yeah, like I am sure that my views on this are going to be challenged in real time in the next few years. And I will probably have a very different take on this in the near future. But you don't like that idea. Um, but yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't actually really see what's so bad about having a super <laughs> polarized internet, to use that term. Yeah. Like, like to me, that embrace the dysfunctional family. Of it. Yeah. Like that is what it means to double like, down on niche yeah. communities is exactly that. Grow up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Get over it. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, even when we like the perception that sort of like extreme communities are rising now or whatever is a natural extension of like, to me, it fits into a larger class or umbrella of yeah. Niche communities are a thing now. And like some of them you might not like, and like maybe they need to go live somewhere, not in the public space, but like they're going to exist. You can't break them up um, because people are vessels for ideas and ideas don't die. So yeah, I mean, I don't, I think there's, again, a difference between how much of that do we allow into the quote-unquote public space. And so if we think of, like, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, as, like, the purely public space, like, I can see an argument being made of, if you want to gather and talk about that kind of stuff, then go do it somewhere else. Don't do it here. The same way, like, you know, a lot of U.S. cities would not allow or would not be thrilled about having, like, KKK members, like, demonstrating or something, you know, or whatever your extremist group of choice is, um, like people often don't go around like spouting those views in public. Um, but that doesn't mean they don't privately hold them and you can't control what people believe privately. Um, and you can't prevent people from associating. And so, especially on the internet, they're going to find a way. Is it an analogy for, you know, so many people had so many utopian visions of what the internet would do for, for conversation, for, for, for so many things. And they were wrong in a bunch of ways. Is the best analogy that sort of having power doesn't change you; it just makes you more of who you are. Being drunk <laughs> doesn't change; it just makes you more of who you are. And is that the best analogy for what the internet has done? Like, it's not the internet has polarized us as much as people were just like naturally gonna. That's what people were thinking, and and then now they just expect- yeah. Like I think in general, we just expect way too much out of our tools and technology, yeah. and that we expect them to make us better people somehow, and like. I think it's just putting so much pressure on them because like we're the ones who make it and we're the ones who use them. And like, they're really, I, I lean more strongly to the side of like, they're just a reflection of who we are. Um, and again, it doesn't mean that we don't find ways to adapt to that. Like, I think this is sort of where that like one way mirror analogy I find helpful of like, I think all content as much as possible should be available for people to consume, but like who actually participates in creating it or talking about it, like is maybe a different group from the people who consume it. So you can imagine like, uh, I don't know, a forum or community where like anyone can read the post, anyone can discover, like you should be able to discover your tribe or your niche wherever on the internet. And you should be, I, I think we should be optimizing for like exposure to as many ideas as possible. And like, yeah, but like who actually gets to like, once you've kind of found your tribe, like who gets to actually talk is maybe a separate group because, I, or I guess I'm trying to answer that question of like, how do we like, make sure that we still get exposed to outside views. And I think like, yeah. it's fine to be exposed to your, you can read stuff on Twitter that you really, really hate and disagree with, but it's a different question of whether you should jump into that thread and be like, you know, belligerent or whatever. Right. You're going to get exactly the reaction you expect. So yeah, separating out like the consumption versus participation of content, I think is useful. We're talking about local global, you're, you're negative on global, but and you sort of rolled your eyes at when I talked about global cooperation, but do, <laughs> you stuck your tongue out. Brad. Do do some of our, do you not believe that we have some needs for global cooperation? And this relates to another idea you talked about, which, or wrote about in your notes, which is 
you're, you're curious why hackers are sort of so down on centralization, um, where centralization is sometimes just more efficient. And hey, sometimes maybe global coordination may be more efficient to solve certain problems. Yeah. Well, and there are some problems that do affect everyone yeah. and we got to figure out how to deal with yeah. them. Yeah, it's really hard to think about. I mean, in the end, like, maybe this is the cynical take. I think about the parallel, I guess, to, like, global and local politics. And, like, one question I've never been able to find a satisfactory answer to is, like, why do people pay more attention to, like, uh, let's say national politics versus um, local politics? You would think that, like, if if local means, like, closer to me and affects me day to day more, like, they should be paying more attention to that than to national politics. Yeah. Uh, but they don't, obviously. And, like, I mean, I guess the best answer I can come with is just that, like, like national politics gets a lot more media coverage and is a lot more, like, drama-filled and fun to follow or whatever. Um, and so maybe similarly, like, yeah, I think in that context, local actually doesn't mean a whole lot because depending on where you live, like, your physical location kind of local might just not be that meaningful to you. Um, so, like, the underlying lesson for me is kind of, like, make stuff meaningful to people. And so I think as much as global or national issues um, or any issue requiring like larger scale cooperation uh, can sufficiently attract people and make them feel like they really care about a topic. Like they're not necessarily, yeah, I don't, I don't see that at odds with the idea of like having like niche communities where you like to spend your time. It's just, right. yeah, but it's, yeah, the downside of it is like, and I guess has always been true about the circus of politics is like it requires like getting people's attention and making it feel like it matters to them. And that's often really hard with large scale issues. Like it's really hard to think about the environment because it's like, I don't know, it's so big. And what does, <laughs> what does one person like, how much can I really affect it? Right. That's like, like the problem with like coordination issues of that scale that like, how do you actually make that feel meaningful to someone is pretty tough. Yeah. I'm fascinated by the interplay of how people find meaning in sort of their craft and as a creator and sort of their individual work and, and even the community that they build as, as a result of that. But then also how people, you know, for all of human history, have enjoyed sort of submerging themselves in something bigger. They just can't resist the crowd. Or, and you've even written about how, how mobs have some positive sides too. And, and, and how one, that's just from how people think about meaning, but then two, the, the story of our time, or the story of progress and the story of increased economic growth is also the story of increased interconnectedness and in that all of our actions affect each other more than they have historically. And, and that's only increasing in my view. And so, uh, and I think in my view, that's also what libertarians sort of get wrong and need to transfer from like live and let live. Like that's not as we're in so much in each other's shit, like on the internet in, in real life. And how do, you know, we go from that to like a win and help win or, or more of a, accept a certain responsibility and that relates to I, you know i've thought about sort of there needs to be like a real-time balance sheet of the commons and and you you sort of maybe joked you were joking but you were like there is no commons <laughs> or how do you think about what comes to mind when i ramble i don't remember the context when i told you there was no commons. Like, secret, I, know there's I, no, I was like well, how, how do you solve a tragedy of commons you're like, yeah secret. man i wish i knew it was, I, had, I had i'm sure i had a really good thought there yeah. but well i think like yeah i, I may have just been referring to like ostrom's work around like there are examples of communities that are sufficiently um, self-organized enough to manage their own coordination problems yeah. without requiring outside intervention from the government or whatever. And so again, I feel like not to sound like a broken record, but a lot of this comes down to just like making meaning of our membership boundaries and even finding like, like I think this is what is so fascinating about this. Like we're sort of witnessing the birth of an entirely new like dimension of society or whatever. And like a lot of the, um, 
problems that we're facing in like our online spaces feel like the early frontiers of our physical spaces or whatever, where it's like, we don't actually know who the government is or like, and not literally the government, but like who is, who has the authority to like monitor each other's actions or, you know, uh, impose sanctions on people for misbehavior. And like, it's not super clear right now. And like part of why I said like, you know, mobs, do serve some sort of positive function is I think we are, we are all sort of having this reaction of like, Oh my God, like you apparently can't say certain things online without having severe repercussions. But maybe what we're seeing is, well, first of all, I don't think people necessarily like long-term, maybe those, maybe people yeah are not permanently canceled and like everything will be okay. But also like we, we need to come up with, I, I think what I, I, I think we're, we're, we're witnessing is just sort of the, this, the, playing around with the boundaries of social norms and like setting norms for how people should behave in quote unquote public. And it doesn't mean that you can't find other places in like semi-private places uh, to have those conversations or express yourself or like more niche communities where you have more context uh, for someone's words. Uh, It doesn't mean that like, I think it's that we expected too much maybe from these like social public spaces, like purely public spaces and, like, yeah, maybe you can't say stuff totally, quote unquote, in public anymore the same way you can't, like, in the physical world in public. But we're going to, as a result, we're going to find ourselves, like, adapting and finding these, like, semi-private spaces where it is okay to talk about these kinds of things. And it's not just totally behind, like, hush closed doors with your friends, but it might even be, like, other kinds of communities where, yeah, you just find, like, like-minded people and it's okay to express yourself over here, but just not over there. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it is interesting. When we talk about sort of canceling... You know, the, the mechanism by which you do is shame and and you've written a post about shamelessness as a strategy and basically you fight shame by just being shameless <laughs> and that that has i don't know when you talk about that well yeah so friend says to me recently uh something like the only way to avoid being canceled is not to align yourself with the people that are doing the canceling <laughs> as in like if you always kind of stand by your views and say like you know this is who I am. This is what I believe. I'm not hiding anything. Then like, there's never going to be a moment of like, Oh my gosh, you're actually this totally other person. So, and so similarly, like, you know, the concept of being shamed is like, it depends on like, who are you being shamed from? And this is like, uh, again, like Ostrom's uh, theory around like the commons and sort of how the commons gets managed is like, if you don't care about people sanctioning you for your misbehavior or for saying things that are, like that they find distasteful. If you don't care about those people, then like your, your shamelessness is all it's going to do is serve as this beacon to attract more like-minded people towards you. And it's actually like really positive and good for you. And so, yeah, like, like shaming and sanctioning only works if you care about the approval of the people who are doing it to you. Um, and so it becomes this weird, maybe dangerous and interesting thing to think about. Well, our membership boundaries are so fluid and I operate in so many different contexts and communities. Like in some communities, I can say this thing. Other communities, I know I just can't say that this thing over here. Um, but yeah, suddenly it becomes weird of like, who's actually in charge? Who's punishing whom? Yeah. Like who, who's uh, like favor. Am I trying to like get the approval of? Yeah. Baji tweeted out this, um, the story about how someone like raised money for cancer on the internet by doing, I don't know, it's, it's an innocuous thing. Like it's a really great thing. And then a journalist wrote, <laughs> like found an old tweet of theirs and then canceled them. And then someone else found a tweet of that journalist and then canceled him. And it was like all within a day. (laughs) Everyone got canceled. Yeah, mutually assured cancellation. (laughs) Right. That is definitely a thing. (laughs) Yeah. 
you know, one one way is to yeah, just make it easier to go to these sort of local or dark forests. Um, you know, know what you can say here and know what you can't say there. Another additional way is to sort of try to you know, Robert Wright has this um uh, in his book Non Zero talks about with every increase in social complexity or interconnectedness, you need moral progress is what he calls it to to meet that complexity. And so Twitter puts us all in the same room at the same time, and maybe we need we need just better etiquette or better conversational etiquette. And I'm surprised that, and you're starting to see it on a small scale, but I'm surprised that that hasn't really taken off more. What about etiquette? Oh, like um, steel manning arguments or, um, you know, not dunking on people <laughs> or just certain. Yeah, I'm surprised that we don't shame the shaming in some way or, 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 or shame certain elements of conversation that are, or, you know, there's this um, there's this Twitter account called Is This Art or Not? And you just CC it whenever you want to know if something's art and it says yes. And it's sort of a meme. And I'm curious if there should be like, a, is this tribalism or not? Like, is, is this just pandering? Like, we could find certain patterns or certain trends that just so discord. And so, and could you, yeah, recognize that? Identify, like the Mott and Bailey fallacy or something. Or I don't know, certain things that people... Yeah, I mean, it's in a funny way. It feels like we're sort of reliving early internet days again where like there was, yeah such the the well-trodden slogan or whatever of like don't feed the trolls right and like avoid flame wars and like if you spend any time on like any internet forum it was always just like god don't feed these people you idiot um and you just know like i just don't pander that kind of behavior and yet like somehow it's like we're all like collectively relearning that behavior in public where it's like when someone is being like hysterical towards you like just like the the greatest like currency we actually have is like not giving someone your attention and i i I do think you are like starting to see this more but just very slowly of and there are always going to be people who just like want to engage and escalate and like lean into the drama. But like the best thing we can all really do is just like don't feed the trolls, just don't yeah. give them your attention. And my friend just blocks them. I'm wondering if I should just block them. Yeah, well, like, and prematurely. That's like the. I mean, coming back to again, like the ways our platforms need to adapt is like yeah, giving people the tools to like moderate themselves or help other. If if you're like in like an individual who gets a ton of attention or like has a lot of followers or whatever, like your community around you, quote unquote, like whatever that looks like should be able to help like filter stuff out for you. Yeah. A lot of this is like, you can't solve. Yeah. Canceling is like a very crude mechanism for trying to figure out how to introduce sanctions and make them meaningful. But in the end, if we kind of fall back on just like tribalism and niche communities, it's like, it's fine. You can say this stuff over there, but like, how do you just make it so that like I don't see it is like maybe yeah. the a different kind of problem? So interesting how uh, there's sort of different levels of abstractions of in group out group. Like the NBA China thing is such an interesting example where it's like you know, you have all this in group out group over like you know Steve Kerr and Donald Trump. Oh, that's that's pretty wide, but they're on different teams. And then but when then when there's like a strong China and they're like since then you should be on the same team. I mean you just sort of one level of abstraction. Oh wait, now we're on the same team. It is interesting. I mean we we sort of have different instincts on this where yours is sort of a boundaries platform should help and just you know know what you say here know what you don't say here and and hey you don't need to connect with the entire world like you have your community that's all you need and i I resonate with a lot of that but my instinct is more like no let's come together global (laughs) brain (laughs) like we just need to see each other's perspectives better totally i mean like and again like I think it's uh, very much a reflection of, well, my and your personality that, like, I'm sort of the, like, slinking around cat of just, like, oh, I don't need you people. I'm just going to be here with my people over here or whatever. And you're, like, come together. Love me. Um, yeah. <laughs> the dog mentality. Um, and, and so, like, I 
any any position that I take on this stuff, I kind of throw out the world as like, here's more things we can th- be thinking about. But I don't. I think we're all trying to figure it out together right now, and I'm very open to like, I might just be completely wrong about the future. Um, right. I just want more perspectives on this stuff. How do you think the shaming stuff all resonate when everyone has their 15 minutes of shame? Do we do we get tired of it eventually, or or is it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, already people are getting kind of tired yeah, of it, right? Do, do people just stop doing it? Or, or how do we regulate behavior? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, that's where part of me does wonder whether we're – like, all we're really witnessing is the creation of a public space. And, like, it is a little bit of, like, a birth by fire where it's like, no, you can't say all this stuff in public anymore. And, like – and then people just kind of learn to, like, self-moderate a little bit. And then maybe things will just sort of even out. And or, like – I mean, like, the classic thing that I think about is, uh, like, how people's – uh, views have changed around celebrities and like nude photos or any sort of like sexually explicit material that gets leaked. And that used to be like a career ending thing. Right. And now it's like, there are celebrities who voluntarily do that stuff and like gain a lot of respect for it. Right. It's like at some point that didn't become this like weird, shameful thing. It was just like, yeah, I can show my body. Like who cares? And so maybe similarly there, you know, things we might've previously gotten super up in arms about. And like, eventually it's just like, <laughs> look, we all have, Things we say sometimes that, like, you know, our views change over time. Please don't hold me to, like, a tweet that I sent, like, yeah. 10 years ago. It's I'm a different person now. So, yeah, I mean, at some point I think people are just sort of un- unimpressed with it. But I do think the canceling as a as a social mechanism or something, like, what it has done is, is to draw the line around a public space and say, like, yeah. there is – no matter what the outcome is, like, we have now, like – I think irrevocably create this space to say like, you just can't say some stuff in public, but that's okay. You can say them now. It now gives birth to these sort of like semi public spaces or semi private spaces to have those conversations. We talked about identity. We talked about reputation. I want to hear your thoughts on status. Eugene way had the great post status as a service, you know, uh, Duvall's tweeted out a few times, this version of like, you know, wealth is positive sum because the more you make, you know, the more other people can make too. status is negative sum because you're, you're uh, zero sum because you're, taking it from other people. I, I think he's sort of simplifying it by comparing wealth creation to status negotiation. But like what creators are doing is they're also, well, actually, people who create the platforms precisely probably are creating new forms of status by like, if you get to be a Vine star, yeah, you might be, you know, competing over who has more followers or something, but that didn't exist before. And you would have been like been trying to play high school football or like there's sort of uh status create uh, by creating new games, new websites, new platforms, you create new avenues for people to to have fans, to be fans, and there'll be scarcity within that, but you can sort of keep creating infinite variations of of status games even to the point where you have, you know, AI fans. So everyone everyone's got everyone's number 1 in something. I how, how do you think about the positive sumness or zero sumness of status and brother, how do you think about how status changes on the internet? Well, as you were talking, I'm pretty sure I've had other, probably more interesting thoughts on status in the past that I can't recall anymore. So I'm just going to go fresh with whatever came to mind when you were talking, um, which is because we've been talking so much about like uh, niche localized meaning, like something I've thought about, I guess, with reputation is that in, in some ways, reputation is extremely tied to who you are. It's very unique to you. And in other ways, it's actually quite fungible in that like, um, and I, I think I wrote about this in that post about people as vessels for ideas that like you can you know if as a as a listener i'm looking say i'm like listening to spotify or something i'm looking for songs that fit my cer- a certain like mood or sound i want to evoke um but like 
increasingly now, like, I'm not always aware of, like, who made the song. It's like, I just like this song. And, like, you know, I just listen to a playlist of the songs I've liked versus, like, albums from people that I follow. And if I don't get the sound from this particular song, I'll just listen to another one. Um, I was actually thinking about this recently uh, with, like, Ninja leaving Twitch, right, who was, like, top streamer. There, There is a question of he can kind of go off and there's some some amount of his audience that's going to inevitably follow him. But, like, for the people that remain on Twitch, like, there might just be a new ninja, right? And, like, uh, maybe that's heresy for, like, they're, I'm sure they're diehard ninja fans that are just going to, like, follow him wherever. But, like, yeah, when one person goes away, another one just kind of crops up, right? And so when I think about status, like, I wonder if status is kind of at odds with this idea of, like, niche localized audiences where you don't really need to be competing. You're not really competing against other creators who are doing similar things as you because like when you're, when you're competing on that realm, then you are quite fungible. Um, but when you're really just talking about your local specific audiences, just devoted to you as a person for whatever reason, they developed some attachment to you. Uh, that's actually like playing a very different kind of game in the future. So how do people seek status on the internet in the future? Maybe my point is that they're not, um, or it's, and I'm just trying this stuff out. I haven't really thought deeply about it, but like, is status a global game and like reputation is a local one where, yeah, I mean, the leaderboard only matters when you're talking about like other people on the same platform as you, but yeah, it just doesn't matter if you have your own audience that's going to follow you no matter what. I want to talk about progress. There's been a lot of popularity around this idea of progress studies, sort of making sort of a somewhat academic discipline of how do we create more progress and, and better appreciate all the things that progress, i.e. economic growth and ideas of the enlightenment have, uh, in Steven Pinker's sense, have have brought to us. And there are things that we, we talked about that you are very excited about, but you also, um, you you had a note of is um, is scientific methods, it was sort of joking, but lean startup for science and um and, and and what you were trying to point out is that it's somewhat reductive and that you think perhaps progress by itself somewhat you know um doesn't make space for sort of mysticism or magic <laughs> um how are you define it when, when you walk thank you it? for making me sound like a crack <laughs> <laughs> um yeah a bunch of different thoughts there like, <laughs> yeah. yeah science man <laughs> um yeah i mean i'm generally I have mixed thoughts on what progress really means. And I think like functionally, probably a lot of people share this view, even people that love talking about progress, but it is sort of this question of like progress towards what, or like progress to what you're a witch cancel <laughs> burn the witch. Just yeah. kidding. And so, yeah, like I think, I guess like one, one of the things I'm interested in, like when I think about like say progress studies or just like the deep understanding of progress as a concept, something that I hope, will happen is that it is very closely tied to practice. Like I think one of the like valid criticisms of academia today is that a lot of this stuff is happening in ivory towers or is not super closely tied to practice. Um, I think that's maybe even the appeal of science is that it's uh, reproducible. And so I hope that it is, it doesn't just become this like a, a historical look at like what maybe what's worked in the past and is more closely tied to like the problems that we're facing today and like directly trying to like apply those re that research and, and learnings to like the stuff we're doing now, um, which I think would be really cool. 
when I think about like progress from like a purely philosophical <laughs> angle, um, one thing I wonder about sometimes is like, I don't know, we talk about like growth, we talk about accelerating and accelerating progress or like, you know, making it happen faster. And it's sort of like, um, I think like the only way we can really understand progress is from this like present day vantage point. And like, you know, when we look back on history or whatever, and we, and we think about like, well, that was progress. Like our conception of what progress means changes all the time. It changes generationally. It's very contextually dependent on some people. One person's idea of progress is another person's idea of stagnation. And so there's no way to really understand the concept of progress without it being very contextually dependent. And so I understand progress, I guess, is like a, a, a catch-all term for how do we make things happen, I guess, because it is so defined by present day expectations and norms and interests. Like it's, it's, I think constantly going to just be like recombined and redefined over time of like, yeah, what do we actually consider progress to be? But are they mostly talking about economic growth? I don't know. That's not, I think that's the question to me is like, but what is progress? And yeah, like in, to some extent, I think I would like to have to focus on like specific terms. And, and maybe that is the work head, right? Is like figuring out like, what does that actually really mean? How, how would we even measure it? Um, but even that act of getting more specific and getting more measurable feels a lot like the scientific method to me, right? Um, it's creating things that are reproducible. And yeah, my all my interest in magic and mysticism or whatever, as you so succinctly put it, um, is is wanting to see this, like, I guess, balancing out of, like, science is inherently very legible and reproducible. Or I guess, I hesitate to even say that because there are a lot of things about science that are mystical and unknowable as well. And maybe, like, the most beautiful parts of science are that. Um, but there is a striving towards a striving towards the legible or something like yeah. that. Like the, and that's like, I mean, embodied in the scientific method is like, right. you should be able to just do like these steps and like get to an answer. And then other people should be able to like reproduce that same answer. And like, but there are an entire like class of problems. And especially when I think we're talking about people like, and social dynamics that are just like, don't really fit neatly into that because our brains are these black boxes and yeah. we don't actually know all the variables that are involved and they change all the time and they are so contextually dependent that it's like an answer that works right now is not good. The same, it's not going to be the same answer in the future. You, you have this quote, uh, the more I yearn for it, the more I seek to categorize it and name it the farther astray I know I am. Yeah. It's a friend of mine who said that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, so I think the fundamental crux difference here is, and I think I'm, we're on the same side here, that we see the world as somewhat indeterminate, that not everything can be, and, and scientists, or true scientists, often see it as determinate. Like, we just don't know it yet, but we will. We'll codify it, we'll quantify it, markets will c come on and do their thing to it. And and we say that that sort of, sort of re reduces the magic or mysticism. But m another way of putting it, some people say, is that it treats a complex system using complicated mechanisms and complicated things are like a Boeing 747 that, you know, we don't know how it's made, but if you get a thousand of us or whatever, we, we can create it. Whereas like a thousand people are not going to understand how the human brain works because, you know, because no one yeah. does. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, um, and I would qualify even to say it's not like oddly, I think a lot of scientists I talk to are, um, very captivated by the mystical and indeterminate, okay, yes, um, but it's almost like there's this weird, like secondary, like cult of science maybe that is yeah. like separate where it's like, 
yeah, it's, it's more about a way of doing things or seeing the world as very literal and legible and reproducible, uh, which, yeah, it doesn't always overlap with scientists themselves. Oh yeah. So like, right. Complex systems, uh, the, the thought stream I always come back to around this is, um, from Jane Jacobs, death and life of great American cities, where she talks about these systems of like organized complexity and she, and, uh, in contrast to like, there are problems, there are problems that have like, you know, two known variables or like maybe like hundreds of known variables. Uh, but then there are problems that have like unknown amounts of variables and like most people problems are like that, uh, where like, we just don't know what's going on in any individual's head. And and until we know, which like, we probably won't, I mean, we shouldn't accept that we don't. Um, it's pretty hard to just say, like, it's hard to apply scientific methods to that. Um, and I think to try to force these scientific methods onto these kinds of problems is to misunderstand and maybe mistreat, um, that like i i guess what makes me sad is whenever i think about like problems or disciplines that have formed around that like let's say like economics or nutrition or psychology or whatever like all these end up being taken as like quote-unquote like pseudosciences and like discounted and and that's sort of sad because it's like it's like they're always trying to compare it against science you're like well it's not a real science it's like okay maybe it's not but like like there's something else and instead of being an inferior version of science like why can't they just be like something else entirely like maybe we're just thinking about the problem wrong and we're trying to make it like this like yeah very de- determinate answer versus like accepting the inherent weirdness of it all um yeah and i think like the method like primarily like if i were just sort of coarsely think about differences in, in methodologies like i think these organized complexity type problems are a lot more bottom up like inductive kind of reasoning like a lot of it comes from just this is like where like anthropology becomes really interesting and like a lot of it's just like observing what normal people are (laughs) doing or whatever you know observing what your subjects are doing and then trying to like zoom out and like uh create like theories or hypotheses around that is different from saying yeah from like i guess a more like top-down kind of approach yeah you know i used to ask this question i'm asking years but i thought of it just now the um who do you think is closest to the truth like the best novelists economists anthropologists mystics yoga teachers <laughs> scientists artists i don't know who is like the best grasp or the one you most resonate with perhaps eric i categorically hate answering <laughs> best favorite type questions which i think is actually i actually just had a conversation with friends about this last night because like about like why i hate anything that's like Preferably the best <laughs> <laughs> right uh but i think it's actually like exactly the problem we're talking about right now which is sort of like yeah. you're saying there is some objective comparative way to like do this and, and but like it's not there is actually the whole point is like you can't compare people in this way at all um who's in your top three i'm just kidding <laughs> Why hasn't the internet created new religions? Like wholesale, and maybe use it, they have in just different ways, but like, I don't know, we have new social platforms every 40 years or whatever. Um, why don't we know, like Christianity and Islam, <laughs> Judaism, I don't, like wholesale new ones? I don't know. I mean, I think they totally do exist. As you're asking that question, okay, I got a hot take for you that. <laughs> So I think like the there's this uh conversation around like is progress slowing down specifically scientific or economic progress um which 
Or like maybe another version of this is like science or academia is like a broken system or something. And like, I think at first I found these ideas intriguing and now I kind of feel like, oh, they're actually not really broken. They're just kind of like mature or whatever. It's, but it's sort of like an overstated, like it's like, it's a form of in-grouping signaling or something to be like, progress is slowing down. Ah, what do we do? And it's like, it, but like, I don't know if it's necessarily true. And anyway, so I feel like <laughs> that question around like, why have we not created new religions or we need new religions or whatever? Like people don't have religion or whatever. It's like the, the mystical corollary of the progress is slowing down question of like, I think they're all there. And for whatever reason, we just like, don't want to talk about, it, but I think it's almost like a signaling yeah. thing of like, we need religion. People need meaning in their lives. And it's like, I think people do a pretty good job finding meaning in their, in their lives now. Um, like, yeah, maybe the question is like, why don't we have like faith based, like, like a literal religion kind of thing is like maybe a, a fair question. But I think we find if we think about religion as like, f- broadly serving two goals like one is like organizing people giving them a sense of community and the other is like uh, personal sense of meaning uh spirituality whatever like i think people find plenty of ways to recreate that in their lives so maybe it's just that religion in itself is becoming obsolete i don't know yeah well i'd build it in a different way which is community and then truth or like we we talked about it and that internet serves that's you know at scale but truth in terms like where do we come from how, where do we, who are we, what should we be doing, what is real? And I, I think that's a lot harder for people because you, you live in your sort of, no one has the same information as you do. And how do you, can you really trust yourself? <laughs> so like what is reality is a lot harder of a question when everyone's got a different story. Yeah, I guess. I don't know if I buy it. I don't know if the internet serves that one as much. Maybe I'm speaking for personal. Yeah, I mean, again, like I do think it's easier to find weird niche communities than ever before. That, that, that share your story, basically. Um, yeah. And in terms of, I guess, maybe answering that, like, but why am I here and what am I doing kind of thing? Like, yeah, maybe that is an aspect that is more lost. Maybe I, and I'm just, yeah, thinking out loud. Maybe I take a more hardline stance around, like, Maybe we're just overthinking <laughs> Like, I guess what I'm trying to do is like extract what what are the what are the parts of religion that like maybe like I I guess like the reason why when when people talk about this you know need for religion or whatever like sometimes I kind of bristle out because I'm just sort of like I wonder if we're just taking the concept of religion too literally and so it's like how much can we break it down to be like all right what is the actual whatever and and so like part of it is just like traditional structures maybe that like give. So that that reduce the amount of thinking that you have to do, right? And like, I think if we have those kinds of structures, like, that's I don't know if we if we maybe the tides will turn back towards like a more traditional means of organizing ourselves socially. And well, things like meditation are big. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if like the Sabbath takes off is like a really big. Um, yeah, but finding some sort of like traditions or just re- like traditions are just sort of like like social versions of like don't repeat yourself right of like there's like codified like how much can we like not have to keep thinking about this thing over and over again just say like this is what it is and like turn your brain off and do it and so like reducing choice in some ways or having constraints can create that you're interested in the concept of freedom as it relates to constraints yeah um this thing i've been reflecting on recently um coming off of a 
really great uh, setup that I had with Protocol Labs where they enabled me to just do my own totally unconstrained independent research, um, which is feels like a dream kind of situation of you're just supported to do the work that you want to do. And I think about a lot in relation to patronage, grant-type funding models where, like, oftentimes there's this sort of yearning for, like, if only we just let creative people do what they wanted to do and just gave them, like, you know, a blank check to go run with their ideas. And I think the experience, my experience over the past year and a half or whatever um, has really helped me understand maybe the other side of freedom, which is that, like, you also need constraints to make things meaningful. Um, otherwise, especially I think when you're doing creative work, because like, otherwise you can really just spin out forever thinking about stuff. And even if you're thinking about it out loud, it's sort of like, well, how do I make meaning from this? Um, when you can do anything you want, then it's like, well, then what is even meaningful? Um, and so that was the thing that I had to learn how to do like in my own personal work. Um, and, and just sort of changed, it gave me a new respect actually for like limited amounts of funding. Like, I think I understand better now why grants sometimes come in, you know, like four year cycles or whatever, instead of like unlimited funding into perpetuity, because you also want to make space for like new people to come in and like, yeah, you just need some sort of constraint. Um, like I understand now why researchers have fellowships that are, you know, one to three years long because it forces you to say, all right, I've got, you know, three years here, I need to figure out how to make something meaningful out of this. Otherwise you're just kind of doing it forever. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it also applies to what we were just talking about socially, right. Is like when you can, I think we were maybe raised in a generation of that was trying to just like do everything and have it all. And was just like very much pushing and just pushing that narrative. And I think there is some value to thinking through like constraints do give people meaning in life. So I want to end by talking about two topics, cults and China. <laughs> so first, just cult. I mean, there is sort of this fascination with cults. I guess, you know, the fall of perhaps traditional religion means the rise of cults. I guess a cult, is a cult just a really intense community? <laughs> like, I don't, how do you, how do you think about cults? <laughs> <laughs> What's your interest in it? Or um, we think about it. I mean, I would really just call myself a casual observer of cults, please. Yeah. Don't get ahead of ourselves here. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think about, like, I, one thing as I was thinking about this transition from, like, many-to-many -many yeah. distributed community models to this, like, one-to-many kind of broadcastery model that we're seeing today is thinking of them as cults. Um, I was trying to think about, like, you know, cults versus communities. I was like, ah, it's not really great branding for people, so maybe I shouldn't call it cults. Um, but I think, like, there is some there are interesting parallels around like you're one person controlling an audience and like, how do you manage that? Um, ultimately I feel like the one to many model is actually pretty different from a cult, but yeah, it's interesting just to think about like narrative dictates so much of our lives. Um, and like the right story can make people do just about anything, which is pretty nuts. And how do we create those narratives in our lives? Hopefully for non nefarious purposes. It's funny, I didn't actually mean to connect those, but I, I saw this thread by Josh Wolf where he talked about how China bought like 10, like the government bought like 10 movie companies or something to make sure that there was never a Chinese supervillain. Um, and there, ha like there hasn't been one in like decades or something, which is pretty fascinating use of narrative. Like not, not even like make more Chinese superheroes, just make sure that they're not the villain. It seems, and or it's one to many, uh, it seems it's increasingly like 
one of the things we're talking about is just like increasing in a positive like voyeurism like being able to think out loud and, and people come in and or being able to have conversations and people be a fly on the wall just like voyeurism as a version of intimacy therapists in some way right it's like even if they and you you talk, wrote about how they don't even need to necessarily like say anything super interesting even just the fact that they're there you get to speak to them process out loud in front of someone else gives you a sense of being heard or being like it's a service to you i had this idea for for an app where so i think parts of therapy are just like a racket basically <laughs> did i tell you about this where like it's called vent basically you get like a college student or like customer service person <laughs> or someone who's a good listener and you pay like 20 dollars an hour so everyone can afford it and or, or a lot more people can afford it and you just you just vent vent vent, vent to them and you don't ex- you're not expecting them to like solve your problems but they're like doing a service and also one of the best ways to actually feel better about yourself is to listen to other people talk about their problems and how bad their life is so um you would actually also pay to be the listener <laughs> and so we would make money off both I'm, I'm half joking about the pay to be a listener but i do there is some and this voyeur like there's some joy to being understood even if it serves zero purpose just someone is there and then I don't know about you, you listeners, but I get a lot of joy after just hearing people vent. And not in a Schadenfreude way, but in, in a perspective type way. This is, I think, the one of the just big underlying um, drivers of patronage or this increased yeah. focus on like niche communities is I write about this a little bit around the idea of like newsletters and like why people subscribe and why they fall in love with a stranger, right? And um, there is something about the newsletter style that is a little bit different from blogging. I mean, there are many different kinds of newsletters, but sort of this like more personal newsletter kind of voice um, that is a little bit more stream of consciousness and a little bit more like, here's what I'm thinking. I'm going to put it in your inbox. And like, it's, you can kind of do this thought experiment of like, you know, if someone were to just like dump your, their unfiltered thoughts to you, like once a week for years, like, you might not care in the beginning, but if you're, if you like absolutely had to read it every single, you were like forced to, um, at some point, if they stopped doing it, you'd be like, wait, like I've gotten super engrossed in your story. Like I want to know what happens next. But like the interesting thing is like, it doesn't really matter what you slot in there. Like it could be the most mundane thing. I mean, this is like the, uh, the beauty of like great, like novelists, I think, right. Is like they managed to take things that maybe, maybe more short story writers, yeah. but, um, but just great writers is like, they're able to take something that feels incredibly mundane or trivial or something you just haven't really thought a whole lot about. And they can make it like the most fascinating story. And so similarly, yeah, I think this like idea of like voyeurism as a form of intimacy, as you were saying, is, um, really well suited to this like one way mirror kind of model of like, I can just be here, like thinking out loud. I can just be sort of like, dumping things out into the world and like someone might read it and I don't even really know who they are. I'm not necessarily talking to them. Like we might not even really know each other. Um, but like if they're forced into the routine of just for whatever reason, maybe they just can't stop looking at it. You know, yeah. I mean, it's just like a, a train wreck or something in the beginning. They just can't stop looking, but like they eventually end up in this routine of like, I just, I want to see what happens next. Even if right. they nece- don't necessarily have any reason for caring about who you are. And yeah. that's kind of a really interesting thing to think about. Totally. And I think a couple of the things that motivate this sort of voyeurism is this idea. One of just like, Hey, I'm in my head all day. It's cool to like take a break and be in someone else. But then also like one way to feel understood is to have someone, you know, just listen to you vent for a while. Another way to feel understood is to have someone else vent or show like, you know, some aesthetic that they really like or, and, and be like, Oh, I like that too. <laughs> or, or I didn't even know I liked it, but that's like hitting my 
you know, psychic cherries or whatever, like that's um, stimulating something for me. And, you know, novels and films are, are sort of this more like formal, well-produced and they're still fantastic and, and serve their roles. But this sort of like one Instagram photo here, one like tweet here, one like just two minute vlog of like, you know, staying in on the things get more and more mundane and, and, and relatable. And that's why people, people, this is cult of vulnerability or people are searching for vulnerability or authenticity is this. Yeah, me too. It's just a desire to, to connect. The most masterful uh, expressions that I've seen was at a Taylor Swift concert last year uh, where she's performing in this stadium. I think it was like, know, whatever it was like ginormous stadium and she's like, you know, one person performing and like, I, I just went with uh, some friends. Like I didn't, I don't have, I don't, well, whatever. I, I love Taylor Swift, whatever. <laughs> yeah, okay, fine. Uh, but yeah, I hadn't been to a Taylor Swift concert before. So I didn't really know what to expect. I don't really go to like large pop concerts. So it was like yeah. a new experience for me. I guess like it's probably, I'm guessing it's actually fairly common among other pop stars. Um, but she's like managing this thing where she's like, you know, playing her music and talking on screen, her face is like huge on the screen or whatever. And she's talking in the, like the most intimate personal way to her fans of saying like, you know, you guys have been with me throughout this whole experience over the years as we've gotten to know each other, not, not you guys getting to know me, but like, as we've gotten to know each other, like I, you know, I couldn't have done this journey without you. And it was just so like effusively um, personal. And at first I was like, like, wow, this is really nice. And then I was like, oh, wow, this is just like, incredibly masterful of um she managed to create this feeling of intimacy while literally speaking to like a stadium full of fans um and i'm sure they love it and uh yeah just to me like i had this mental image of like seeing her do that on stage as, as sort of this like very performative aspect that um i don't think has to be like manipulative or bad or anything it's just sort of like again, when you have this space, when you have a little bit of a wall or a separation between like you and your audience and you can kind of just like brain dump in public, like, yeah. you know, she, like, as I kind of saw, was just sort of like brain dumping out loud and like, but it was like beautiful to watch it happen to this uh, enormous audience. Um, you can actually engender a feeling of intimacy, which is to like, yeah, tens of thousands of people, which is really cool. Yeah. I always thought that like being a celebrity is good for other people and and less good for you. <laughs> Social, like, Unless you find ways to put boundaries around it and create meaning off that. the I mean, I mean while we're on the Taylor Swift train, I've been thinking about Kanye West recently. <laughs> and, you know, what he represents as in terms of like the times that are changing, uh, the times they are changing. So, I mean, Kanye said George Bush hates black people in 2004 on the, you know, the brink of Hurricane Katrina. And then at a concert, you know, three weeks, just released a sort of, basically right-wing gospel album and you know was saying a concert like they you know is now a black conservative and they're saying a trump supporter and saying hey they can't control what what i what we think like why are they no black conservatives and there's something deep or really interesting there i mean partially is contrarian but you know saying bush hated black people wasn't that contrarian at the time but i guess how do you think about the transformation of kanye west in light of sort of how internet culture has changed and how maybe we view celebrities as changed. Like, I don't know if they have any like particularly interesting nuanced takes yeah. on Kanye, except that, I mean, yeah, I mean, kind of everything. I mean, like in some ways he just really embodies, I think the transition that a lot of people are collectively experiencing. And I think it's like, it's really interesting to people like him. Like I think back to like uh, when Miley Cyrus was doing her thing of yeah. being like super over the top and like, yeah, everyone's just like so quick to blame it on, and like, I don't purport to know anything of these people's 
yeah. personal and private lives or whatever. But all I'm doing is like observing like a lot of the reaction of sort of discounting their um, actions by saying like, oh, they must be mentally ill or on drugs or right. like they've gone crazy. Like so many people say Kanye's gone crazy and like, who knows, maybe he's going crazy. I don't, I don't know. Um, but I think it takes away a little bit from like whatever is going on inside his head, like the, at least whatever he's externally producing, I think resonates a lot with, yeah, what a lot of people are feeling and, yeah, it's almost like a failed form of sanctioning again to kind of go back to that yeah. of like saying like you must be crazy or something and people trying to sort of like punish that sort of behavior of being kind of outlandish or whatever. Um, but they're missing the fact that like that that level of outlandishness is actually attracting a lot of like-minded people who are like kind of coming out of the woodwork and be like, oh, I also feel this way. Um, and so they end up be- being more successful than – like I feel like the, the sanctioning and the punishing actually ends up like making – drawing more attention towards them. Yeah. It, 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 this does segue into China a little bit. Like there seems to be you know, the transition you were talking about, I think not the words in your mouth, but like people are going from left to right. <laughs> and, and that seems to happen in society. Like it is interesting, you know, the, the cold war, like, you know, us was right. Or at least us was capitalist. China was communist. Now it's like the reverse. <laughs> and not, not the us is communist, but it's like so far left and China's, much more right, at least on social issues. I, I you, you have written about China, like thinking about it as a repre- representational democracy, or maybe you had one line about it in one of your notes. I think there is maybe an interesting, yeah, I mean, this kind of gets back to at least, yeah, I think for like our generation group, it was very much about um, emphasizing democracy, participation, like every voice considered, um, which also reflects the culture of the early days of the internet. And yeah, we're seeing, you know, we were pushed this idea of like total, total freedom. And then like once everyone had total freedom, then it became a little bit like, oh no, now like I don't have any meaning. And also like we're all clashing with each other. Uh, so like how do we find constraints again? And how do we find, and I think like a lot of people are just sort of looking for someone to like tell them what to do. Um, maybe this gets to your sense of coming around on that whole like, you know, loss of religion thing or whatever, loss of personal meaning. Um, And so it's interesting to think about like how that uh, how that should be reflected in our government. Um, I, I guess just thinking about like yeah, like, there are some aspects of democracy that just don't scale, um, and there are also sometimes there is a benefit of having like when the choices aren't necessarily meaning. Like we're being asked to weigh in on a lot of things that might not even be meaningful or affect us. Um, and so how do you, how do you find meaning in being a citizen again? And there are some, there are other approaches to it that, uh, involve, um, that have like, yeah, just take a different approach from the U.S. that are where I think, yeah, we, we tend to highly emphasize the, the feeling like a, a participant, feeling like a citizen and, um, but finding ways to like preserve that at scale is yeah. difficult. The way I, the analogy right now in my head for the US China thing is like you're you're it's a coming of age tale where you're sort of like you notice something early on in life that you know to be true, hundred percent true, and you're like fighting for it and and you have these, you know, villains who are you know, obviously wrong and, and you defeat them and you get even more confident, more confident, you you know, get to high school now. And then you meet this like other person who's doing something totally different than you and they're like it's like working out and 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 the most recent people you tried to conquer, like, didn't really like your way of life. And it's like, wait, maybe I wasn't, like, as right as I thought or as, like, uniquely right as I thought. And maybe 
there are other ways to be right, or maybe I'm wrong, <laughs> or, or, or maybe not. I don't know. I don't know well, anything this about is it. I mean, like, yeah. right? Broadly speaking, we're seeing. So uh, Francis Fukuyama had this, you know, end of history essay or whatever, and like, it's so crazy to think about. I mean, I guess I can tap into some aspect of like maybe like childhood or teenager years, maybe where like, yeah, everyone really bought into the liberal democracy model, and like, and the end of history was was saying that a hey, liberal democracy is how the rest of the world is going to be run. Yeah, it was saying like we basically won. We proved out that Western liberal democracy is the best form of government. Like, is this the end of history <laughs> because we just did it all the things we're going to do, right? Um, and again, I think this comes back to my um, just wanting to like um, get more specific around like what we mean about progress because like I think at, at that point in time we would have said like the pinnacle of progress, at least according to Fukuyama or and like um, his contemporaries were like – yeah, pinnacle of progress is like this liberal democracy model that we have like championed around the world and like gotten, we've toppled, you know, governments that didn't buy into and installed this everywhere. And like, you know, and now you fast forward 20 years and it's not just that that didn't pan out. That would be one thing. Um, but it's that even our, the way we value liberal democracy has actually changed. Like there are a lot of people who would say that is not actually the pinnacle peak form of government. And in fact, there were like a lot of problems with it that were revealed over the, the decades that followed. And so suddenly it's like, wait, what is progress? Like, do we, do we, are we striving towards the liberal democracy model or is like, are we trying to come up with something else? Um, and I don't know what that other thing would be. Like, I mean, my personal view is like as, as much as we all, yeah, the, the Churchill thing or whatever of like, as much as we hate democracy, it's worst form of government besides all other forms. Um, so I don't have answers necessarily on what's better, but it is interesting to think about like the ways in which it has maybe failed our expectations. Maybe our expectations were too high around like what yeah what we expected that government to do and and that in a way i think that goes back to this thing of like i think we just put so much pressure on our tools our technology and like to me government is a tool in that sense and in that government should only really reflect the needs and will of its people that we expect these like laws to do like all the work for us or whatever it's like no this is this is like an actively evolving thing and um there's never going to be a point where it's like Oh, liberal democracy made us good people, and now we're done. This is the end of history. It's like, that's just not going to happen. My guest today has been Nadia Ekbal. You can check out her work at NadiaEkbal.com. Um, subscribe to her newsletter if you like the ideas and made it this far. Thanks for having me, Eric. Thank you for coming on. It's been fun. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.